ultimately the quality is better. There is a real thesis behind it. A lot of this comes down to timing, and it's a question when everyone says, okay, let's refocus our California ideal and say, okay, now we're going to invest in the state, now we're going to put a tremendous amount of focus on it because we think it's ripe for consolidation when it is. We're trying to do that to time the, the clock with federal legalization and of the ability to export. So largely the reason I've looked at it here. Question? No, no one's dominant. No one's going to be dominant for a while. So it's, it's just too big a market. From the PodConnect studios, high in the Rockies at the beautiful Beaver Creek Resort, it's the Raising Cannabis Capital Show. Today in Raising Cannabis Capital, we are continuing this year's Cannabis Investor Series, sponsored by 212, with my good friend, Rob Hunt, the CEO of Linnea Holdings. Rob, welcome back. To, welcome to the show. No, thanks, Dan. I'm so used to being on other shows with you that it's hard not to say welcome back. <laughs> I know. It's just going to be fun. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Rob is one of the co-hosts on the Deadhead Cannabis Show, which is another show on PodConnects. And I, I talk to Rob every week, so that's why I was saying welcome back to the show. But this is going to be fun because we've never really had an opportunity to talk about your company, Linnea Holdings. And, and I'm really glad you could free up some time to talk about it. And I've heard you describe it as kind of a hybrid, half private equity and half operating company. Can you explain how that works? Sure. So I've done a traditional private equity fund, and I've also been an operator in the space. And as I got further along in the industry, realized that there was kind of a consistent thing that was always missing from a lot of the smaller operators. And that was that A, they were always seeking capital, and B, they were always seeking expertise. And on the expertise side, a lot of them didn't have the ability to attract a marquee CFO or a marquee COO, or they didn't know where to turn for tax advice or for how to get a proper audit done, but kind of get out of their own way sometimes. <laughs> so a lot of these businesses were reaching for the stars and trying to figure out ways to attract people that otherwise would never want to join their business because they just weren't far enough along in their life cycle. So we thought about from the perspective of let's perhaps start a, a business where we say, okay, look, we can be your capital source, but if you want to be your capital source, you're also agreeing that we're going to come in and take a very, very active role in your business. And in the process, we are going to help you with your back office administration and let you really focus on what you do best. So if you're an extractor, go extract. If you're a cultivator, go cultivate. If you're a retailer, focus on bringing people to the store, but don't focus on trying to build uh, a really large team that supports you because that support team is expensive. And to get a good support team, it, it requires something that you have based on how, how much revenue production you have to actually get someone to want to wanna drop what they're doing to come work with you. So that was the initial thesis. Of yeah, I, I like the idea of how you're providing these key pieces to the puzzle to these entrepreneurs because they're really good at one thing. Like that's why you're investing in them because they're super good at one thing, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're good at managing people or attracting people and all the other things that go along with that, which will make them a lot stronger if they have somebody that takes care of that and they can just focus on what they do. Yeah. And again, from a, an investment perspective, the traditional PE way of investing outside of cannabis is that you're providing a lot of that expertise and you're thinking about what the next step is and how you're going to unlock the value and where you're going to move that value. Whereas in, in cannabis, a lot of the PE shops I was either working with or, or speaking to, it was much more analogous to venture funding. It wasn't necessarily private equity funding. And now, now it's certainly gotten to the point where it is much more on like a, a traditional private equity side where the check sizes are a lot larger and you're much further in the stage of where you're investing. But for a long time, it was early stage companies that were doing 15 to 20 million in top line revenue. And they were looking for, they called a series A, but it was really more of a, a pre-series A round. 
So on that side of it, you have to roll up your sleeves and get involved. If you actually just write a check and expect that governance rights are going to do the trick and you're just going to sit there and go to your quarterly board meetings or have weekly calls with the, with the entrepreneurs, oftentimes, in my experience, that wasn't enough. So it really required getting much more involved and saying, okay, let's figure out where your real holes are and before we make an investment. Do, do I think I can actually add something and be a creative to the business model where I say, this is something I think I can dig into because you have X, Y, and Z, but you're missing a key component over here that I think I can plug, whether it was relationships in the supply chain or whether it was adding people that would be effective to help them reach the next set of goals. But oftentimes that was human capital related. It wasn't necessarily visionary related. Yeah. Now I know you've invested in like small to medium size companies and from what I understand is it's basically throughout the entire cannabis supply chain, but it's just in California, right? Correct. Yeah. And why is that? Again, the, the private equity model that I was looking at in cannabis in general is I thought that a lot of the funds were far too spread. So whenever a state operates in a vacuum, it's really, really difficult to say, okay, well, if I invest in company A, does that have any sort of synergy with company B or company C if they're located in different states? And the answer is that unless you're investing in a tech play that could support a retail play or unless you're investing in, in something else that, that had some sort of nexus to it, that it was really difficult. So I thought, okay, let's focus in one state. Let's focus in things that represent different parts of the supply chain. Let's make sure you can try to provide contracted revenues throughout the supply chain between different parts of it so that you've got one group that is looking for where to sell their, their product. And you say, okay, I've got a built-in buyer or a built-in supplier. That was a major part of it. The other part of it is, Learning the regulatory in multiple jurisdictions is exceptionally difficult. And even in California, there's a deviation from municipality to municipality, from county to county, from city to city. And that's true in a lot of states. So not only do you have to learn what the state law is, you have to learn what the municipal or local level law is. And if you're doing that in, in multiple different places, it's much more difficult. So if you say, okay, I'm going to pick a specific geographic area, that's one reason. The other reason is, look, California is 39 million people. It's 12% of the U.S. population. It's the fifth biggest economy in the world. It is by far and away the most important and largest cannabis market that there is. You look at all the hype that the Canadian companies got, like, and everyone say, oh, we invest in Canada because we feel safe that it's this huge market that's got the support of the federal government. Well, you know, guess what? California is a bigger market. And it's got the support of the state government. So if you're going to operate inside a, a vacuum and not have to worry too much about any federal intervention, you might as well be operating in the largest market. What it lacks in oligopoly state-decided winners, it makes up for in the fact that you know, asset values can be a lot lower in California. And if you actually think about it thoughtfully, uh, you're able to build something in California you couldn't build elsewhere by going after somewhat of a role of strategy. Well, and California doesn't even have a dominant player. I don't think any player has even 1% of the market. Is, is that your experience? No offense to California as a market. It's, it's a train wreck of a market. It has been for years. You know, going into 2018, when the law changed to the Post Amendment 64, the expectation is you're going to see like a real coalescence of the legal system. And what happened in 2018 is you had the old Prop 215 market still operating much less expensively in parallel path to the Amendment 64 market while still contending with the illicit market because California has a unique situation where it's not just a consumer state, it's a producer state as well, which means that if you want to bring flour down from Northern California and sell it in LA, you're not passing through like six steps of middlemen the way you would to get that same flour out to the New York market. So the cost of the, of the illicit market still remains relatively inexpensive, and there's no shortage of people willing to supply it. So California has been a tough market for a lot of people to work within simply because of just how much they have to contend with from a regulatory perspective, as well as a legacy illicit or traditional perspective. That's now getting better. And at a certain point in time, that's going to get a lot better. For that reason, though, it kept a lot of the bigger players out. A lot of the MSOs kind of stayed away from California. 
But if you look at the last year, there's a tremendous amount of attention on California going forward. And it's not because of that much has changed today. But the expectation is that federal legalization is probably five or six years away. And when federal legalization happens, then there's probably another couple of years after that before you actually see the ability to cross state lines and sell into other markets. But when that happens, you have to think, okay, who's the natural supplier of cannabis to the rest of the country? Who's the natural supplier of products? And who's who are the tastemakers, the style makers? If you can make it in the California market, if you can actually put out a brand in the California market that resonates in this market, it will resonate in other places. And we've already seen that. I mean, there's some great examples of brands that have been able to migrate out of California. But ultimately, this is the export market to the rest of the country. And I look at it from the perspective of, I didn't invest in New York when the New York law changed because I thought the New York law was so restrictive that anyone that was getting those licenses would be putting up negative numbers for years to come. And, and that's been exactly has been yeah. the case. And everyone did it on the expectation of, okay, if I've got enough capital and I can weather a storm for six, seven, eight years, ultimately, when it goes to adult use recreational, I'll, I'll recover that loss in a matter of two or three years and then take off as long as we've got the restrictive law still in place then we're sitting in a really good position. The same way that, for instance, Florida has, and those that have done well in Florida, those that have done well in Illinois, they've become dominant players around the country because they had such a, a great opportunity in kind of an open market with very few players. Well, California you know, never had that. But uh, as you think about what's going to happen going forward, there is a, a true consolidation in the California market that ultimately some of the biggest California players are going to be behemoths and they're going to start exporting to the rest of the country. And whatever first mover advantage a lot of those other guys had in other markets, you're not going to get rid of the 10 biggest MSOs. Like they're, they're too big at this point to go away. But you'll certainly get rid of a lot of smaller players that built infrastructure in states that never should have built it simply because it's a lot less expensive to, to produce in California. And ultimately, you know, the quality is better. There is a real thesis behind it. A lot of this comes down to timing. And it's a question when everyone says, okay, let's refocus our California ideal and say, okay, now we're going to invest in the state. Now we're going to put a tremendous amount of focus on it because we think it's ripe for consolidation when it is. We're trying to do that to time the, the clock with federal legalization and uh, the ability to export. So largely the reason I've looked at it to your question. No, no one's dominant. No one's going to be dominant for a while. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just too big a market. Yeah, it's amazing. And you mentioned the 10 biggest MSOs. The, their path eventually comes through California. So if you're one of the dominant players, you're an acquisition target at some point, or you're the acquirer. That's the whole thing, is, is which one is it? If you're making the right investments and you're building those companies correctly, you're certainly an acquisition target for, for someone's companies. And, and any group that is thinking about building something in California that's large enough, and I can think of a handful of brands, they've already rebuffed a lot of the attention that's been paid to them by the MSOs. And said, no, we're not interested in selling because they actually believe even, even if their private value is like a fraction of what the largest MSO's value is, they believe in a couple of years that they'll be a more important brand and a more important company. And whether or not they're right or yeah. wrong, we'll, we'll see. But there's a handful of groups that are doing over $100 million in top line revenue today in California that they think, okay, if I can survive in the California market the next three or four years and continue to grow this brand and continue to become more dominant, let's say get 2% market share, 3% market share, once they're large enough, then they can start going out there and start acquiring other businesses in neighboring states, whether it's Nevada, Oregon, or Washington, or whether it's going in and actually acquiring licenses in some of these tougher to, to, to get states. And what I'll say, and this is the belief I think is absolutely right, is the California market's only going to consolidate. Other markets, like let's say New York, is only going to expand. Yeah. So if, if, if you're out there and you're acquiring a license at a huge premium, and all of a sudden Hockle decides that she's going to open up that market to 20, 30, 40 new players, and you just acquired a license, well, guess what? You overpaid for that asset. And so if you're looking at where the market's going, you've got to think, okay, 
do I want to be in a market where the stroke of a pen can expand, or do I want to be in a market that's already as large as it's going to be, and now it's just going to get smaller? I'm much more on the side of I would rather build something that becomes more and more important over time as consolidation happens, and you're just uh, working the arbitrage of taking your scale and buying businesses for significantly less on a multiple to revenue or multiple to EBITDA than, than you're producing. And if you can work that ARP, then theoretically, you should be doing really well. The, the only question there is access to capital. And that's what you're going to bring to the table for a lot of these people. And before I run out of time, I want to talk about investors or if people wanted to invest, what were, are some of the advantages or of working with a structure like Linnea Holdings versus a traditional cannabis VC firm? First of all, we got a much shorter horizon. A traditional private equity firm normally has a five-year deployment, five-year harvest period. Linnea, I built it to be in and out of the trade in five years. So we're in year early year three right now, but we're already starting to get to the point where we're about to start recycling some capital and start putting it back to work. And also, I don't write just pure equity checks the way a lot of guys do. A lot of times now, I look for things that have cash on cash returns, that have participating preferred paper. I, I won't get involved in a, a transaction in California anymore unless I go on the license myself. So if the worst happens, we're able to actually pick up and, and run the business if we need to. And I can surround it with people that I think I can put in place. So for the most part, I'm looking for investments that will have either a near-term exit or will have decent cash flow on the business so that we're able to, uh, to start returning and capital to the investors in a reasonable period of time. But I'm, I'm not looking 10 years out. I just don't think this, this market moves way too fast to be a 10-year life cycle. And for that reason, I think the advantage is that there is no specific lockup the way there is in a PE fund. And really, we're thinking about it. We're not an SPV where we're going after a, a specific asset. We're going after a handful of assets, but as like an opco, and the investment is in the opco. And as we harvest, we'll harvest out to, to the investors. I, I think the fact that you have expertise in this field and the likelihood of zero on any of your investments is so much less makes it a, a lot more attractive in my mind because a lot of VCs expect to have some zeros where you are not accepting any zeros because you can jump right in. I think that makes a huge difference. And for investors that are interested, I'll have Rob's information in the show notes. You can just follow up with Rob directly. And you know, if you're a Grateful Dead fan, don't forget to check out the Deadhead Cannabis show every week on all major podcast networks. Rob, I wish we had more time. This was good. Thanks for doing the show today. Of course, Dan. And uh, I'll see you uh, tomorrow to report our other show. <laughs> Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.